welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Welcome to those uh, online that are joining us that decided to stay home and, and chill out, enjoy the, the comfy of your couch and not risk the snow. Uh, my name's Pastor Ross. If uh, I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you uh, sometime either today or, or in the upcoming weeks. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. In, uh, in my house, we have a, a running debate. Uh, the question is, is figure skating a sport? I didn't actually need your opinion. I know the answer. It's not. Right? It's, 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 uh, it's pretty clear. Um, the argument is not whether it require, requires skill or, or if it's difficult or if you need talent or hard work. Because um, obviously it does require great physical abilities, right? Now, there's no doubt that I know I can't do a quad lutz or a triple sow cow into a sitting split into, I don't know. I mean, it's just all kinds of weird stuff. I don't even know, where, where does triple sow cow come from, really, is the question that we need to answer. But, but uh, it's hard, and it's difficult, and I, I'm recognizing that requires a lot of athletic ability. There's no question about that. My problem with it is, can it be a sport when the winner is decided by a judge determining the artistic score? Because yes. it's, it's such a subjective judgment, right? I mean, like what... With thing with art, right? What, what one person likes and what another doesn't like, you know, it, it's, it's not always adding up. It doesn't always make the same, uh, doesn't make sense to me, right? Now, um, the question I think is really is, is do I trust the judge, right? Do I, do I trust the judge is going to see it the way that I see it, that they're going to judge it fairly, right? I'm, I've been burned by Sally and Peltier, right? So, you know, I, the, the judging scandals and so forth, and so can I trust that judge? Do they know what they're doing and they're doing, are they judging in the right way, right? Well, that comes to sports and, and so forth. It's not that important. Uh, but what about when it comes to judging people? Is it okay to judge people? And, and, and then even how do we judge people if it is okay? So that's what we kind of want to look at this morning. Now, when I, when I first started to, to learn about the grace of God and the new covenant, um, I was kind of narrow-minded when I, when I came to certain words, meaning that I, I saw certain words and I thought that they were old covenant words and that they were, they were wrong, that you should never use should. Did you catch that? Uh, you, you don't use do and work. And, and command, like those were, those were words that were tied to the old covenant. Those were tied to the law. And so we, we shouldn't, we don't, we prefer not to use those words, right? And, and so I was, I was essentially tying or attaching a moral value to the word itself. But as I've, I've grown and matured just a little bit, I've come to see that, that the word itself isn't the issue. It's the context of that word and what else is going on in that word that matters so much, whether it's, whether it's helpful, whether it's profitable, or whether it's harmful. So let's begin with that word. So judge in itself is not a bad word. It's not a sinful act to judge, right? You all judge all the time. At least I hope so, right? If you, if you pull out some milk and you're not sure whether it's good or not, you give it a, smith, a sniff, right? You are judging the milk in that moment. Right when when you decided to come out, or when you decided to stay home, I'm looking at you guys now. Uh, you looked at the roads and you said it's not worth it, right? So you made a judgment call to stay home. Uh, you you make judgment calls whether to watch a movie or this movie or that movie. Uh, if you like um, the Star Wars Episode Eight, uh, the what was that? The Rise? No, the the Last Jedi. And you like that? I would question your judgment, right? But we we make those judgments all the time. So. We even judge other people all the time. At least I hope so. And especially, I hope it comes that when it comes to me, you're judging me. Let me explain what I mean by that. In, in Acts chapter 17, Paul comes to this little, little town, little city called Berea. 
And he begins to teach them about Jesus and how he's the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the Savior. And, and he's explaining with the cross and the significance of what it meant. And it says in Acts 17 that these Bereans would go home and they would search out the scriptures to verify that what Paul was saying was in fact true. So they were, they were judging Paul. They were not just sitting back going, well, this guy said it and he seems to be intelligent, so we'll just go with it. No, they were, they were critically evaluating what was being said and comparing it to something they know, they know to be true. So I hope that you judge me, uh, Robin, especially Josh, um, any, any, anyone that gets up to, to, to um, purport to, the, to speak for God. It's a terrifying thing, terrifying thing. And that you don't just swallow it whole. You go, well, wait a minute. Let's, let's see, does that actually line up with Scripture? Does that make sense? And so we're to be like the Bereans, where we're constantly judging what is being said against what the Scriptures have to say. So to, to judge is not automatically sinful, uh, but it can be. I guess the real question is, how do we judge? How do we, how do we and by what criteria do we judge? By. Now, you might be thinking at this point, well, let's judge what he's saying against Scripture, And in Matthew 7, Jesus says, judge not, lest ye be judged. You can tell how I learned that at a little age, because it's King James, right? Judge not, lest ye, Y-E, be judged, right? So it's, it's it's a powerful statement. That's Jesus saying that. So is it wrong to judge? Well, I think that the difference here is, in terms of that judgment, is how what's the result of that judgment, right? We have to understand what is Jesus really speaking against here when he talks about not judging one another. So let me illustrate it this way. Suppose I'm, I'm walking down the street and someone comes along and they see me and they, they begin to evaluate what I'm wearing and how I look and the style I have. And they go, wow, that's, uh, that's unique, right? But they just keep going, right? They've made a judgment. They've evaluated my style and they thought, well, not for me. Good for him, but not for me. So they've made a judgment on that. But then you have another person that I come across, and they look at me, and they go, wow, what a stylist monkey he is, right? And they begin to, in their mind, be critical about my clothes and my hair and and how I look and, and, and my fashion choices, and they decide because of that, I'm not worth their time. And so they roll their eyes, and they look the other way, or maybe they mutter something under their breath or whatever it is, but now what they're doing is they're not just evaluating me, they're condemning me. They've they've decided that my worth and acceptance is less than something because of how I look. And so that's what Jesus is warning warning against, is that he's talking about don't condemn one another. That's what he's warning us us against. So it's, it's right and it's proper that we judge, but we need to do it in a healthy way, in a right way. And so that's what our passage this morning is going to tell us. It's going to tell us how do we judge one another. So 2 Corinthians 5, 7, uh, 5 uh, verses 16 and 17, we were in that passage uh, last time, uh, but that really kind of just set us up so that we can understand now what Paul's really trying to say uh, for us. So this morning, so verse 16, he says, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we we look at this topic, this issue of, of judging one another, I pray that we would approach it from your perspective and that we would understand what it is you're trying to say to us. How we can judge people but in love. How do, we, how do we evaluate and, and how do we approach people? And so, Father, I'm going to trust you as best I know how to be the teacher and give us words of life, words of encouragement, and words of hope. And may you help us to understand who we really are in you as a result. In your name we pray, amen. So in verse 16, Paul begins, he says that we no longer recognize or regard one another according to the flesh. Right? So this idea that regard or recognize, it's essentially that's idea of a judge to evaluate, but he's telling us how not to. We don't do it according to the flesh. And so we, we don't judge one another based on the performance, essentially, is what he's saying. 
I think, I think Paul uses this terminology of according to the flesh because it's, it's, it captures a lot, right? It captures that, that external, that physical, that performance aspect based on all kinds of different things. So here are some examples of what a fleshly or worldly manner would be. The, the, the world judges us based on our looks, based on our beauty or the lack thereof. They base us on how strong we are or maybe how tall you are or how short you are. Do your, do your legs and arms kind of match the proportion of your body, or do they wonder if you're a descendant of the T-Rex, right? So, you know, does it make sense that you have the right proportions? Uh, maybe it's you're too fat or you're too skinny. Maybe it's your successes and your accomplishments, or maybe it's about your failures. How many businesses have you run into the ground? Have you, have you had affairs? Have you struggled with addiction? Uh, all kinds of things. Maybe it's your post-secondary school and what kind of degrees and the number of letters after your name. What kind of a job do you have or career do you have? Are you, are you a lawyer? Are you a doctor? Are you, uh, are you a teacher, a custodian, a house framer? You know, I, I've met some people who are, are doctors and they're happy to tell me they're doctors. Because if you say mister to them, they might say, hey, listen, I went to school for eight years to be a doctor. I'm not a mister anymore. And they've, they've they're using that to kind of show off a little bit, right? And so maybe that's important to them. Maybe it's how much money they have or how much money they make, right? Where, where maybe, maybe they're poor and we look down on them for being poor, or maybe they're rich. And so we look down on them with jealousy and envy because they're rich and we hold that against them. Maybe it's based on the clothes they wear. Maybe it's on the length of their hair, Barry. Uh, too long, too short, no hair, comb over, mullet, all kinds of different things. Maybe it's even the kind of music they listen to. And yes, it is wrong to judge someone by country music. I, the question is, is country music music? That's another question for another time. But, but the point being is there's all kinds of different things that we might use to judge one another. And all of those things, though, are external. All of those things are fleshly. And so that's the concern. That's what he's saying. We don't judge one another based on your performance, based on what you do or not do, based on your successes or your failures, based on how you look. None of that matters, which is, I think, really important. I mean, because think about it. In, in AA, what do people do? They get up and they say, hi, my name is Ross, and I am an alcoholic. Some of you know and just are afraid to say it because you'd be outed, right? But... It's anonymous for a reason, right? But I mean, the point is they're, they're identifying themselves based on their addiction or past addiction or their sin. And, and what we're told here is we're not to regard, we're not to judge one another that way. Paul says, in fact, in verse 16 there, that we used to judge Christ this way. We used to evaluate Christ based on what he did, based on those externals, based on his performance and so forth. Uh, turn for a moment with me to Matthew chapter 16. So Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. Here we've got, we've got, you know, Jesus, he's been ministering for a while and he's with his disciples and he's going to ask them a question. He's going to ask them a question that says, he says, who, who are they? What's, what's the word on the street? What is the world saying about me? Who do they think that I am? So he's not asking the disciples for their opinion. He's asking the disciples for what they're hearing from other people. And, and so the answer in verse 14, they say, and some said, well, um, uh, some say you're John the Baptist, which is interesting to me because John the Baptist is alive at this point, right? So maybe they're just thinking, I'm not saying he's John the Baptist. I've just never seen them in the same room together. Maybe that was what they're getting at. But... Um, but some say John the Baptist. Others are saying you're Elijah. Remember, Elijah was the one that was carried off in a chariot. And so maybe he's come back now. And Elijah is known as the greatest of all the prophets. So that's a, that's a pretty, pretty significant statement or comparison to say that Jesus is, is Elijah, that he's come back. Uh, some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Right? So they're all recognizing the, the, the miracles and the wonders that he's doing. And they're going, wow, that's, that's amazing. That's impressive. And so they're, they're recognizing that and they're seeing that. Others, however, also saw him as a threat, but for the same reasons, for the miracles and the teachings and everything he was doing. And so the world was judging Jesus by his outward performance. But let's, let's think for a moment. What would happen, though, if a, if a week goes by and Jesus doesn't do any miracles? 
No more feeding the 5,000. No more healing the sick. No more uh, curing the blind or the lame man. Uh, no more water into wine. You know, none of those good stuff. So no more miracles. What, hap- what, what begins to happen in the minds of these people following him? Is he, is he really the Messiah? And they might say, well, you know, come on. Everyone has a bad week right? Everyone goes through a rough patch, you know, even Austin Matthews and Marner go through a rough patch from time to time. So therefore, let's give Jesus a chance. You know, he just had an off week. But two weeks go by, a month goes by, two months go by, still no miracles. What are they thinking now? He's not the Messiah. I guess we were wrong. You know, he's kind of lost it. And because their conclusion was he's the Messiah because of his works, but if he's not doing those works anymore, he must not be the Messiah. But think about it. Did Jesus need to perform a single miracle, preach a single sermon, do anything in order to be the Messiah, to be the Christ? No. He was born that way. He was simply the Messiah because that's who he is. And what he did and how he lived out, uh, lived out of that truth is why he was able to do all those things. So Jesus lived like the Messiah because he was the Messiah, not that he was the Messiah because he lived like one. Did you catch that? Because that can be life-changing for you, right? That you, who you are is not based on what you do, but what you do will be based on or determined by who you think you are. So our, our, our actions don't define us. But who we are can define our actions based on understanding who we are. Does that make sense? Let me, think, let me put it to you this way. If I bark like a dog, if I swim like a fish, if I run like a horse, does that change me in any way? No. Not, not, in no way. It doesn't change the fact that I am a human being. It doesn't matter how, what, what, how I act, what I do, it cannot change who I am because I was born this way. And I don't have to do something to become a human being. I am a human being. I was created. I was born this way. And so what we want to do when we see people acting in that way, we're like, don't you know who you are? You're, you're not that. You're this. And that's what's so important for us is that we, knowing who we are, we live like who we are. So let's go back to the gospel of Matthew now, because now he's going to say to them, not only, okay, that's the word in the street, that's what everyone else is saying, but now he says to the disciples, who do you think that I am? Any, any guesses on which disciple speaks up? It's Peter right? He's the one that right on the, right there on the bat, right? And he answers really quickly in verse 16. And he says, uh, you are the Christ, which means the Messiah, the savior, the sent one. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, right? So Simon, that's his name right now. He's going to become Peter. But he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So he's saying that, that it wasn't based on the world. It wasn't based on the externals that you came to this conclusion, but my Father showed you. And you're coming to this conclusion because you're seeing it how my Father sees it. And that's what we want to do. We want to understand how we judge people from God's perspective. How does God see people? How does God judge people? Well, to understand this, let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. So go Old Testament here, 1 Samuel chapter 16. And while you're turning there, let's, let's give a little bit of context here to this passage. In the previous chapter, verse, uh, chapter 15, we've got uh, the story of Saul and his disobedience. And because of this disobedience, he's going to lose the crown. So God had commanded King Saul to go to war with the Amalekites. Because the Amalekites, while Israel was leaving Egypt and crossing the wilderness, that nation harassed Israel, attacked Israel over and over again. And so God was now bringing judgment on to the Amalekites. And he said to them, wipe them all out, everything, including the animals even, spare nothing because of what they've done. We are, we're ending that, that line. So King Saul goes to battle, and, and he's a good, good warrior, good leader. And so he goes in there, and, and he wins. He defeats them. But he saves now the king, King Agag, and he saves the finest of the animals. 
so that he can now sacrifice those animals to, to God. And so now Samuel wakes up and he knows something's not right. And he shows up and sure enough, he sees King Agag and he sees all the animals and, and Saul's all excited. Saul's excited. He's like, look what we've done. We won and we're going to worship God together. And he says, what are you doing? If, if, if you were so good, why do I hear the bleeding of the sheep? What's, what's happening over here? Because if you really won, if you really were obedient, none of this would be around. See, what's interesting here is this is, a, this is a really, we don't have time this morning, but it's a really cool picture of the flesh. That the Amalekites represent the flesh. And what God has asked us to do is to give no quarter to the flesh. Don't, don't leave a little bit in your life. Get rid of it. Put it to death. That's the picture he's trying to create here. But what King Saul is trying to do is he's trying to have both. He's trying to keep the good parts, the good-looking flesh, the thing that's going to help him. He's even trying to dedicate the flesh now to God. But God wants none of it. So I'm not interested in your sacrifice. I'm interested in your obedience. I'm interested in you trusting me and what I've said for you to do. And because you have not listened, you're going to lose the kingdom. It's, it's not going to be in your family anymore. It's going to be given to another. And that's sort of how, how it closes. What's interesting, and I think it's such a tragic story here, is that if, if you read through it on your own time, when every time he was confronted by, by Samuel, King Saul just said, but I was, I was wanting to make a sacrifice to your God. Did you catch it? To your God, not our God. And so what happened in this moment, it was God wasn't Saul's God anymore. And so he kind of rejected that. Very tragic. And in fact, it closes with saying that Samuel would grieve King Saul for the rest of his days, all up until his death. And so that's how chapter 16 now begins to, to open, where, where Samuel's now hearing from God. And God's basically saying, it's time to move on. It's time to move forward. We're going to anoint another king. I've chosen another king, and he's from Jesse of Bethlehem. And so he goes, I want you to go and meet Jesse, and we're going to anoint one of these kings. And, but Samuel's afraid. And Samuel says, but if, if that happens, and, and, and Saul finds out, Saul's not going to like that, and I'm going to die, and I don't like that. That's a bad plan, God. He says, well, just go offer a sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. I love that. Just a quick aside, God doesn't just say to Samuel, here's the plan. You're going to go here. You're going to see a guy named David. He's about 5'3", 130 pounds, brown curly hair. He's going to be standing by a well. He'll have a red cloak on. And then you're going to say this, and he'll say this, and then this is going to happen. And he's, he's not giving a detailed plan for Samuel to know ahead of time. He's simply saying, go, and each step of the way, I'll tell you what to do. Isn't that terrifying? Wouldn't we rather know the other one? Right? Okay, I know all the details in the plan, and I know how it's going to turn out. Okay, good. Now I can go forward. It's not how God works. Instead, he says, trust me. I will show you what to do. I will show you what to stay each step along the way. And, and so he, he says that in verse, uh, verse 3, right? You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate for you. And I think that's, that's how it works for you and I, right? Philippians 2.13, for God is in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So he's in us to, to set that path, to show us, but he's going to show us moment by moment, step by step, right? All right, that's, that's just some free wisdom there. Let's return to Samuel now. All right, so Samuel's now, he's walking towards Bethlehem. And I, I kind of imagine now what, what's going through his mind, right? He's kind of playing it out. He's kind of imagining, you know, back to when it was when he anointed King Saul. And, and do you remember what was so special about Saul? He was tall, right? He was head and shoulders, it said. Head and shoulders above everyone else. So he literally stood out. And, and I think that at that time, that's what you wanted in a king, right? Because... Back then, your king wasn't some political genius. He wasn't worried about economic theory and, and taxation and so forth. The king was someone who was going to lead you into battle. 
And so you wanted someone that you, you were confident in. You wanted someone that was strong, someone that was a warrior. And so when they saw King Saul, big, strong, head and shoulders, I mean, that's the kind of person that's going to strike fear in opposing armies. And so Israel was excited about that. And so I imagine Samuel's kind of thinking back to that and going, man, God, Saul was perfect. He, was like, he, was, he, he fit all the criteria. He checked all the boxes we were looking for in a king, but he blew it. And now we're going to get King 2.0, the new and improved version. Oh, God, I can't wait to see what you have in store for us. It's going to be bigger. going to be stronger. going to be better looking, maybe. Like, what, what have you got in store for us? And so that's what he's beginning to wonder, what, what God has in planned. And so then he goes in verse 5. He comes up to the town. Uh, they're kind of afraid when they see him. They said, do you come in peace? In verse 4, he said, in peace I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So he's saying to Jesse, basically, go get your sons. We're going to anoint them before we go to the sacrifice. They're only thinking the sacrifice is the deal, but it's really about opportunity to see the sons. And so Jesse's going to bring the sons one at a time, and he's going to start with the oldest, Eliab. And so when Eliab walks in, Samuel says in, in, in verse, uh, verse 6 there, surely the Lord's anointed is here. He sees him, and he's probably big, and he's strong, and he's strapping, and he's you know, hair flowing in the wind. Like He's just perfect. And Samuel's like, God, you've outdone yourself. Straight out of central casting, you've Perfect. Job here is done. Sprinkle some oil. Let's get out of here before Saul finds out. My job is done now, right? So he's all excited about it because what he sees looks right. But look what God says to him. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So God tells Samuel, this is not my guy. Sure, he looks like he's got everything going for him. He looks the part, but you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. You're looking at it from a worldly perspective. You're judging on the wrong criteria. None of that matters. You need to judge with my criteria. You need to look at the people from my perspective and how I'm judging people. In fact, if, if you went with your criteria, that's what we got with King Saul. And do we really want another King Saul? And so he rejects him. And so he says, bring your next son. And so one by one, all of the sons come by, and each one, God says, no, not the one, not the one, not the one. Until finally, Samuel says, do you have any other sons? Oh, yeah, I, I guess we got one more. David. <laughs> Don't know how I forgot about him. David's out in the fields. He's a shepherd looking after the, the animals. And that's telling to us. Because you wouldn't normally ask for your own children to go be a shepherd. You, you, you get slaves for that work because it's not good work. Because when you're a shepherd, where do you sleep? Not just with the sheep. You sleep in the gate so that they don't walk over you. And if you do, you have to go get them, right? So just imagine just curled up. Like, that's not good sleep. That's probably not going to help your posture, right? So that's, that's where he is. But we also know that David has fought off bears and lions. So it's, it's not a nice place. And so when they send him off to go be a shepherd in this area, it's because he's not that important to the rest of the family. Not only that, we also know David's not a big man. Remember when he put on Saul's armor when he went to go fight Goliath? And what was it like? He, he, was like, he was little in this massive armor. He was like swimming in it, right? It'd be like Caleb right now putting on one of my, I have a suit, believe it or not, right? It'd be like Caleb putting on a suit of mine, right? It, it just would flop. It just didn't fit. And so this, this small runt of a kid that's really not that important to the rest of the family that's not that significant, that isn't thought well, that is even forgotten by his own father, that's the one that comes. And what does God say? That's my man. That's the one I want. 
Now, the world might say, but he doesn't look like a king. I mean, he's small, he's runt, he's just, it's not what you're looking for. But what does God say? That's my man. Because that's a man after my own heart. That little man has the heart of a lion. That little man has the heart of a warrior. That little man has a heart of gold, of love. That little man will fight for his sheep. He'll fight for his people. That's my man. That's the one I'm choosing. And so God's not looking at what the world looks at. God's looking at the heart of a person. That's what he's getting at. So he's ignoring the appearance. He's, looking, he's ignoring the skills, the talents, what they've done. It's not about the performance. It's about their heart. So immediately the question is, well, what does God see in our hearts? And maybe, maybe you get a little nervous at this point. And you, you think of a verse like in Jeremiah 17, 9, where it says the heart of man is deceitful, that it's sinful, it's wicked, it's beyond cure. Who could understand it? And we, we see that verse and we go, we've been, maybe even told that your heart is evil, you're a sinner, you're no good. There, don't trust your heart. It's black, it's dark. And so maybe we look at that and we think, oh dear. If God looks at my heart, I'm in trouble. And we conclude that it's dirty and we're, we're rotten. And therefore we need to fight against ourselves, even reject yourself. Except what we learned last week blows all that out of the water, right? That's why we were studying that last week so that we could understand this week that something happened, a transformation happened on the cross. What happened? You and I were crucified with him. That old spirit, that old nature was crucified with him and it's gone. So when people talk about Jeremiah 17, 9, and we still have a wrong heart, we still have a dirty heart, they've forgotten Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 says, I will remove your heart of stone and I'll give you a new heart. He removed that sinner and you were born again as a saint. He removed that old rotten spirit and he gave you a new spirit. There's a new you. That's what's happened. That's the transformation that's happened on the cross. And that's what's going to bring us now to 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The criteria that Paul says, right? So we don't judge, we don't regard, we don't, we don't uh, evaluate one another based on the flesh, based on the appearance, based on performance, based on what you do. Instead now, we do it how God does it. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a brand new creation. The old's passed away, gone, disappeared, buried. And so God doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your shame. He doesn't see your past, even though that's how we've defined ourselves most often. He sees the new heart, the new spirit that he's created you with, which means you're a saint and you're not a sinner. Don't, don't ever refer to yourself as just a sinner saved by grace. Nowhere in scripture does God ever call you a sinner saved by grace. Think about this one, Romans 5, 8. Therefore, while we were yet sinners, what does that infer? What does that imply? While you were, but not no more. Right? If I would say, when I was single, implies that I am not single anymore. And so what, when Paul is saying, Romans 5, 8, while you were a sinner, you were, but something has changed. Something is different. Now you're a saint. And, and to reject that is not, is not humility. In any way, it's not humility because it's rejecting what God has done. In fact, it's more proud because it's about you and what you've done. Humility is to see yourself the way God sees you. And 63 times, God calls you saints to the saints at Ephesus, to the saints of Corinth, to the saints of, of Rome, to the saints of Thessalonica. Over and over and over again, he calls them saints. In fact, even to this church that we're studying their letter in, in 2 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, he wrote to the, to the church in Corinth who are saints by calling. And then he spent the next 15 chapters talking about how they're not living like saints. But they're still saints. They're still holy ones. And so that's, that's who you are. And that's, that's what God wants us to begin to understand about who we are. 
understand about our, our nature and ourself. That we're saints and we're holy. In fact, you can't get any more holy than you are today. What does he see? He sees that he's made you righteous. That's Romans 5, 19. By that one act on the cross, by what Jesus has done, not by what you've done, he's made you right. He's made you okay, which means you're good now. In fact, we're going to do this illustration. We've got time. It's worth it. You are the holiest person on the face of the earth. I know that might be hard to understand, especially based on maybe the kind of week you've had, maybe some of the thoughts you've been having this week, but I guarantee you're the holiest person in the face of the earth. Let me explain why. Remember in Exodus, uh, Moses, he's, he's walking along, and God wants to get Moses' attention, so God starts a fire. Because if you want to get a guy's attention, start a fire, right? But that's still not quite enough, so God's going to go further. He's going to make it a curious fire a fire that will not consume itself. So now you've got fire and curiosity. I mean, all he needed was a pizza, and then it would be easy, right? <laughs> but, but this fire and curiosity is like, i got to go check this out. So he starts checking it out, but then it gets even more curious. It gets even more weird, because what happens? The bush speaks. And what does the bush say? Take off your shoes, because I just swept up in this place. Is that what it says? <laughs> no, it says take off your shoes, because this is holy ground. Now, why, why was that ground so holy? Was it, was it, think about it, was it the right kind of bush? Was it the right shape of bush? Did it like, did it, you know, was it cut in a star, you know, like one of those art pieces? Like, was it, did it have the right amount of fruit? Had it just had like all kinds of fruit? Like, what was so special about that bush? God was in the bush. Which means that if God was in the bush over here, then this would have been the holy ground. But what if this bush here was diseased? It was just about to die. What if, what if this bush here never bore a single piece of fruit? What if it was like the peanuts Christmas tree kind of tree? Like, you know what I mean by that? Like, it's really sad and pitiful. Would that not still be the holy ground. In fact, would that not be the holiest place on earth in that moment? Because it has nothing to do with the bush, but the one who is in the bush. Fast forward to today. Where does God live now? You are the temple of God. Christ is in you. Wherever you go, Christ lives in you. And so Jesus in you now makes you holy ground. We ought to take our sandals off, our shoes off, because that's how holy we are. And you can't get any holier because God is the basis of your holiness. God judges you based on the fact that you're his child, someone he loves, someone, someone that he didn't want to live without, someone that he said, I'd rather die and go to hell than be without you. And so I will do all that just for the chance just for the simple chance that you will be mine. And that's what he's offering us. Well, let's talk about some misconceptions here, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to our, our understanding, our identity, our righteousness. And a misconception is more than just a lie, right? Because you see it a lie, and that's, that's clear. That's obvious, right? And, and you recognize that, and you can just quickly dismiss that. But a misconception is a lie that's wrapped up in truth, which means on the outside, it looks pretty good. It's when you start to peel back the layers, you start to see in the middle of it, it's actually rotten to the core. That's what a misconception is, right? So if you kind of imagine, have you ever gotten an onion and it looks okay and you cut it in half and all of a sudden it just looks not natural, right? It's because at the core of it, it's rotten. And that's the case here with the misconception. There's all kinds of misconceptions I've heard in the church surrounding our identity in Christ. One is, well, God looks at you as if you're righteous. Or, or he doesn't really see you at all. He sees past you, and he only sees Jesus in you. In both of those examples, both of those ideas, is you're not actually good. You're not actually righteous. You're not actually loved by him. He just ignores you. He's just playing a game of, of make-believe and pretend. 
Does, does that sound like the God who knows everything about you? Who knows every single thought you're going to have, every word you're going to say, every action you're going to do, the number of hairs in your head. He understands you to the very smallest minutia. And now he's going to ignore you when he sees you? Or hear this one, it's the filtered theory where we're filtered out by the cross or we're filtered out by the blood of Jesus. Again, do you think God's playing games? Or, or this one is like they say, well, it's a robe of righteousness. I hear that one a lot. Because, and it sounds good because Isaiah, it talks about a robe of righteousness. And so the idea is I'm really, I'm still dirty. I'm a sinner. But God puts this robe of righteousness on me to cover up my sin. Please understand, in the new covenant, God does not cover anything. It does not cover your sin. It does not cover your shame. It does not cover your, your, the fact that you're a sinner. None of it. Because he takes it away. He's removed it. He's exchanged it. And so he's taken away your sin. He's taken away your shame. He's taken away the sinner. And he's exchanged it for something new. And the robe in the Bible isn't anything to cover up. It's like a name tag to announce. Think about it. When, when Jacob gave Joseph the, the coat of multicolors, right? The, the technicolor dream coat. When he, when he gave that to Joseph, that was a statement. What was the statement? This is my favorite son. It wasn't to cover anything up. It was to announce to everyone. Or when the prodigal son returns... And the father puts a robe on him. It wasn't to cover up his mess. It was to announce to everyone, this is my son. So robes are declarative. They define, they're, they're explaining to everyone who you are. So when God puts a robe of righteousness on you and I, it's an announcement. Not to cover anything up, but to expose your heart. That you are in fact right. Here's some, two other misconceptions I hear a lot. One is it's just a positional truth. I hear this from all the time from pastors and teachers. It's just a positional truth, meaning it's true in heaven, but it's not true here on earth. Positional. Well, let me ask this question then. Is it just positionally, were you just positionally a sinner? You know, true in heaven, but not really, you weren't really that bad on earth. Oh, no, no, we were actually sinners. Well, the same verse, Romans 5.19, that says that you were made sinners because of Adam's sin, the exact same verse says you were made, constituted, formed a righteous one, a saint. And so it's not just positional and conditional. It's one and the same. Because let's be honest, if God says you're a saint, if God says you're righteous and you're holy, then what must you be right now? Righteous and holy. Here's the other one. Well, it's a future thing. One day, one day we'll get there. Two verses. One, Romans 3.21. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God is revealed to us. Apart from the law, apart from your performance, apart from your successes and your failures and how many sin and addictions you've overcome or not overcome, you are righteous because of Christ and his obedience. Or in 1 John 4, I think it's verse 17, where, where John says that you and I have confidence in the day of judgment. Because just as Jesus is, so also, not you will be, but so also are you in this world. Think about it. If Christ is in you, can you be somehow less holy than him? You're one. That's like, like adding some cream to your coffee and expecting the cream to stay cold. Not going to happen. They're one. You and I are one with Jesus. His holiness has become my holiness. His righteousness has become my righteousness. Do I earn it? Do I deserve it? Of course not. But it's a gift that he's bestowed on me as his son. Because I belong to him. It's a gift. Couldn't earn it. And so that's who we are. That doesn't mean that we don't have more growing up and more maturing to do. Because of course we're going to do that. But as we grow and mature, we don't become more holy. We don't become more righteous. In the same way that, that my kids are growing up to become the people they've always been. Some of you are still growing up. Well, you're all growing up, right? And becoming the person that God made you. But you're not becoming more holy. You're not becoming more of a saint. And you can't become less of one. Because it's already done by Jesus. 
Isn't that amazing? But here's the application of it. And this part, I think, is really amazing. Because this truth is not just for me, but it's for others. It's for how we see one another. And that's really the purpose of Paul's point in this passage here, right? It's about, remember he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, that we're not going to regard or judge one another the world's way or the fleshly way, even though we used to judge Christ that way, but no more. Now we do it based on God's way, which is who you are in him and what he's done on the cross, how he's transformed us, how he's traded, exchanged that old self for a new self so that we can see who we are right now. And so in Romans 15 and verse 7, Paul says, therefore, accept one another just as in the same way that God in Christ has accepted you. So what does that mean? It means that when I, when I look at Nikki, I don't see Nikki based on what she does. I don't see her based on her singing or on, on, on how often she serves and how often she gives of herself and, and the kind words she might say. None of that really changes who Nikki is. When I see Nikki, I see a child of God, a holy person. That's St. Christopher right back there. Sounds better than St. Chris, right? St. Christopher sounds more regal, right? So that's St. That's Chris. And it doesn't matter what he does or doesn't do because his faith is in Jesus. He's a new person. And that's who we see. And that's how we understand. That's, that's Christ and Sally. And Christ and Sally is a holy person. She's beautiful. And I see her heart. And that's how we understand her. And that's how we relate to one another. That's how we're going to judge one another. By seeing who they really are and looking past what they're doing. So let's, let's apply this to our relationships, right? Because it's easy to see the prickly side of people, right? Maybe it's, it's how they talk. Maybe it's, uh, they're, they're critical, or, or maybe they have some annoying habits, or, or maybe they just have a general messiness in their life that they're bringing to the table, they're bringing to the relationship. And it would be easy to look at all those things and say, you know what, That's, I, I want no part of that. And we send it away. That would be easy to do. But when you see their heart, you, you look past all that. In fact, what you'll really see is when you're seeing all that prickliness, all that, um, that criticism, that anger or bitterness, what you're really going to see is someone who's hurting. And you'll see someone who's got a good heart but can't get out. And now, now something will stir up inside of you wanting to love that person wanting to embrace that person and offer the life of Jesus to them so that life could now begin to burst forth out of them and to watch them grow and to mature. And so you're going to want to love them. You're going to want to show them grace. You won't be as easily offended by them despite that gruff or prickly exterior. And you'll want opportunities to show them your heart for them. And so we can apply that to our our, our marriages, our friendships, people in the church, but even the people who in the world that don't see life the way we do, the people that we're at odds with, maybe, maybe people who have a different political opinion than you. Maybe they support Trudeau. Maybe they love you know, Trump and the MAGA hat. Maybe they think that the government response to COVID should have been more or less. Maybe they like Pepsi. We can look past all those things, even the Pepsi thing, knowing that their heart is good, knowing that God has made them good. And we don't have to agree with them. And we don't have to make them agree with us. That's okay. Because who they are is more than just their opinions. It's more than, than, more than who they vote for, more than, than the music they listen to. All that's secondary at best. What's primary is who they are inside, in their heart. Now, some argue that, well, that just preaches a, a very soft and sloppy kind of grace. So you're, just, you're just ignoring the past, and, and that would be dangerous. That's not what I'm saying. We don't, we don't ignore people's stories and just say, well, they're born again, and therefore, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter what's happened in your past. What I mean by that is if, if someone has, has a past of fraud and embezzlement, we're not going to put them in charge of the money. Right? But that's, that's out of love for them as, as much as a love for all of us. 
because we don't want to put them in a spot where they could fall, a spot where they could be, be tempted. So we want to protect them. So we don't ignore all that. The point is, though, we don't, we don't reject them based on what they've done. We're looking at their heart. Is their heart good? And that's how we want to connect people on, uh, at that level we want to meet with them. And so you're not judged by what you've done. You're not judged by the exterior. You're judged by what God has done inside. And that's how we want to see one another. Because that's how we want God to, that's how we need to see ourselves as well. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you, you spoke, Jesus, to your disciples on the night of your arrest when you promised the Holy Spirit to come, that he would, he would do three things. He'd convict the world of sin. He would, he would convict us that the enemy has been judged and we don't have to listen to him anymore. But he was also to convict us, to convince us of our righteousness, of our identity. So I pray, Father, that your spirit, as we go home today and the rest of today and tomorrow and the next day and the day after, to the day we die, would your spirit convict us of who we are in you? Would your spirit convince us that we're your beloved, apart from our failures, apart from the shame, apart what's been done from, to us and by us, but solely based on what you've done on the cross? And that we would trust that and we would rely upon that and we would live free. We would live as you've intended us to live. And we'd offer that same grace to others. And that we would look past their exterior and we'd see their hearts and we'd love them right there. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.